We welcome uh, to the, the podium and to the class, uh, Reverend Matt Skolnick, who is our general presbyter. Is that the actual title? General presbyter? No, yes. executive presbyter. General. General. He's a general. And it means general, not general. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So uh, he's come, and he, in talking to him a few months back, and I was saying, you know, would you have interest in teaching on the, in this class? And, and we're, we use this book by Daniel Migliori, Faith Seeking Understanding. He said, oh, I know. I use it in seminary. It's a great book. So he already knew it, and it's completely new to me as of last year, right? So he, he's known it for a long time, and so I said, well, you're the, you're the expert here. I'm just the amateur. How about you come in and you teach us for a few weeks? So he's coming in to teach on the new community. I'll let him explain that, but may I open us in prayer. Almighty, gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this new day. We give you thanks for the church to which you have called us, this community which you have called forth by your Holy Spirit. May your Spirit call us again here, God, to respond to the ways that you are calling us. We pray, God, that you would be with us, guiding us and guarding us in all your ways. We give this day over to you, asking that you would use us, that you would grow us, that you would change us, and that you would open us up to receive of all that Matt has to teach us this day. May you pour out your spirit upon him, empower him, and strengthen him to uh, bring all the material and all that he has for us today, ultimately all to your glory. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michael. Well, good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see everybody. I see familiar faces. I also see some people perhaps that I don't know. So when we talk and when you um, speak, if you could just say your name in that way, I can start putting faces to the name and we can treat each other as humans as opposed to just entities out and about. The first thing I want to do before we actually get to our topic is to talk a little bit about the nature of theology. And I'll tell you a little bit about how my understanding of theology changed from the time I was a little boy um, in high school, starting to read the scriptures, and then as I became a pastor and studied to be a pastor. When I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I started to get this understanding that theology was something that kind of fell from heaven, and there was right theology and wrong theology. And the title of the book by Daniel, and I always say it wrong, Migliore, sounds very good, um, is Faith Seeking Understanding. It comes from a phrase from St. Augustus. And the basic gist of faith thinking understanding is theology is not the work that God gives to us. Theology is a practice that we engage in trying to make sense of this thing we have called faith. So we take the scriptures, we take our understanding of the world, and we try to piece it together as much as we possibly can. In this section of the book, the chapter, I think it's chapter 11, is called The New Community, and it has to do with the very essence, the very nature of the church. And there's a fancy word that comes from the Greek. It's ekklesia. This is the word when you read in the scriptures, church, the Greek that's behind it. And this word has gained in popularity over the years. So you may or may not be aware there was actually a tiny little storefront church not too far from here that was called the Ecclesia. Um, and so the question is, 
what does the New Testament actually mean about this thing called the church? And there's two ways to look at it. The first is to just look at it from a linguistic standpoint. The word or the the, the prefix ex means out. And then the second part of the word comes from a, a root, kaleo, which means to call. And so the church is a called-out community. A ch- the organization, the, the people, called out for a specific purpose. Later on, ecclesia just simply meant congregation. We translated it as church. It simply meant the assembly of God's people. But there was a context for this. This is a good picture. I think I pulled this off of Wikipedia of an ancient Greco-Roman structure. So at times when the early church gathered, they would go and they would worship at the synagogue. We see this in the book of Acts. However, when you start to have a distinction between Jew and Christian, where did that new community gather? And the truth is, is that early Christian communities started to gather in homes. More specifically, they gathered in homes of the more wealthy people in the community. So I'm working my memory here. I think Lydia is from Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, Lydia starts to be a community leader, and people would come to her home. Now, if you look at this, um, I'm not going to make the argument that her home was this fancy, but I will make the argument that there is this wonderful courtyard, and in that courtyard in the ancient Greco-Roman world, that would be the community gathering place. That would be the place that the ecclesia would come together to worship and to pray. And then, of course, there would be some more private areas. You'll see the Roman baths back there, right? Maybe not everybody in the community was welcomed into Lydia's bath. You'll see some, some kitchens, some bedrooms, and so forth. But more than that, we have this tie to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Does anybody happen to have a Bible with you? I have my Bible. Now, Corinthians is an interesting book for a variety of reasons. Perhaps the most powerful reason that it's interesting is that the Apostle Paul, writing to his church in Corinth is helping to address some major issues within the church. So as we look at chapter 11, beginning in verse 20 to 34, the first thing that is challenged is our understanding of the Lord's Supper. So where, when, and how do we celebrate communion? Okay, we can say we celebrate it every day, as a church, we celebrate it in the sanctuary. The first Sunday of the month, okay. This is the word of the Lord, right? First Sunday of the month. Well, it turns out that communion, the Lord's Supper, comes right out of 
the Old Testament practice of the Passover. And the Passover was a meal, not a worship service. Let me say that again. The Passover was a meal, not part of a worship service in a house of prayer. Perhaps we are. Perhaps we are. And we can talk later on about why we're doing it. The argument that you would see is that a wealthy Christian leader would invite the community together. They would worship, they would pray, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper here in the home. And so I'll read from chapter 11. Paul writes, So then, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now I can continue, but the main point here is that as the community gathered, there was a problem. Did you pick up the problem at the beginning of that passage? What was the problem? They were eating this meal. That's right. Some people didn't have any. If you would imagine, this is a community where you have some very wealthy people. You also have people of very little means. And if this is the church of Christ, if we're in communion, Paul would argue, we should share together. But some people were drinking their great wine, and others had none. Some people were having their great feasts, and others had very little. And so again, if we are going to be this called out community, the question begins to form, how do we function? How do we live together? How are we supposed to treat one another? Before we go on, I do want to mention Something that I've been working from um, for a while that I, it has been pretty productive. Um, when I gather pastors or when I gather other church leaders, this is based off or inspired by a book by Daniel Coyle. Daniel Coyle is actually from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, he wrote a book called The Culture Code. And the, the question is, how do you form great teams who actually do things? And he had three pieces. The first two... Um, I can pull directly from him, just rearranging the words a little bit. The third, I can make it more specific to the church. And this is how I would like to to structure our time, or at least encourage our time as we spend the next four weeks together. The first is pretty simple, is that this is a safe place for everybody. Everybody has something to offer. Everybody is welcomed. And the second is tied to it, 
the church is a place, or the gathering is a place, where we can mutually share vulnerabilities. Now, this is hard for a lot of people, but I'll tell you that there is a beauty in it. Um, Just about a month ago, Michael and Nancy were down in Zanesville for a presbytery meeting. And at that meeting, um, we were talking about resilience. And as we were talking about resilience, we had different people share some of their struggles. Just the fact that some people could stand there and say, hey, this is something that frustrates me. This is something that makes me tired. This is something that I'm having a hard time getting through was enough to allow them to feel supported to take the next step. And so I just want to remind us of that. And then the third, Daniel Coyle says, for any group to be productive and to function as it should, you have to be gathered around the same purpose. And as Christians, as we gather, I think it's pretty easy to say, we gather to build up the body of Christ. Okay, so as we're struggling with this question about church, let's not use the word church right now. Let's just say Christian community. When have you experienced some wonderful times, some great, when have you developed some great memories in a Christian community? When you look back at it, you say, oh, that was holy, that was wonderful, that was beautiful, that was life-giving, okay? And perhaps maybe I should share while you think. I'll give you one example. When I was in college, Vanessa and I, what? (laughs) <laughs> no, you, you don't need to be scared. We worked at a church camp together, a Presbyterian church camp that belonged to the Pittsburgh Presbytery. And while we were there, we had kids from all walks of life, um, kids who came from strong and healthy communities and kids who came from horrible situations. And I remember on more than one occasion at night, we would gather for Vespers, gather for our closing worship service, and just watching that group of kids and teens and young adults care for one another. For me, it was something that just was life-giving. It didn't matter where those kids came from. It didn't matter what experiences they were going through. In that community, they were safe. They were cared for. The love of God was expressed for them. So that's a memory for me. Do you happen to have a memory? I would hope so, or you probably wouldn't be here. Yes, sir. Okay, a church camp. And it was a very, it was a great impact on me. Okay. That, uh, we were all merged together, and, and uh, it was very, just like you did. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. And I think your name is Greg. Greg. I was right. Okay, good to see you again, Greg. Hi, I'm Beth. Hi, Beth. Hi, Beth. Hi, Greg. I'm Greg. <laughs> and I have to say, probably my best memory is the Israel trip that we did. Ah, okay. That was truly amazing. The people were amazing. The sharing every night with Rabbi Spitzer. Okay. Yeah. And the experiences, the experiences on the Galilee, the experience in Bethlehem that I had. Okay. I mean, there's just... So, so, many. so I'm going to guess there was something about location, but there was probably something about the community as Absolutely. well, those relationships. Absolutely, with John David Guy, okay. with Pastor Breeze, uh, but with the Irvings and with Kent and, okay. and all of the people that were there. But 
Roger too. And Roger too. Okay. That's why Roger's yeah. here. Roger's too. Yeah. And Wendy. Sure. Yeah. And and the the um, camaraderie has persisted. I mean, mm -hmm. the feeling of community has continued. Okay. And the, the work that we build each other up. Um, Wonderful. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, Roger. Go oh, go around. Yes. Right. I'm Judy. I don't think you met me. Before. Hi, Judy. Um, mine's kind of mundane, but I think that's a good thing about those. Yes. Um, I have a grandson who's about four, and he it gets to choose where we're sitting in church. So it's very un-Presbyterian when I walk in the door. I don't know. Are we in the balcony? Or are we here? <laughs> and the one day I came in the front. And I know this is so just minor, but he was up, they were up in the balcony. And as I went down, I just everybody said hello to me. And it was just so nice to feel so welcomed in this church and to feel like people are just happy to see you. Okay. And that was such a nice feeling. That so day. is it safe to say that even though it wasn't your congregation, you did, you felt like you were part my, of it? Oh, it is oh I misunderstood you. Yeah. He goes here. Oh, he, okay, 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 yeah, okay, okay. I go here too. Okay. Very good. Thank you. We're just going to go oh, around. Sorry. We will just go around. Um, so I'm Vanessa. I'm Vanessa. I'm married to Matt, but I'm also a member here at Christ. Um, when Matt took this job, we, the kids and I ended up joining here because we needed a place to land. And I like this place most. <laughs> so um, I would say when Matt was talking about holy memories, I went back to childhood. And I have the great blessing uh, sarcastic, um, to not only be a pastor's wife, but to have been raised as a pastor's kid. Okay, so <laughs> um, I tried to talk him out of it. It's real. That's real honest. Um, so, as a kid, I think the precious um, item is that I felt like I was raised by the whole church, and really not just my own parents. Hmm. Um, and I think not just PKs experience that. I think lots of kids in our community can experience that connectedness with so many different adults. I saw some hands, but I wasn't oh. sure. Well, I was just going to say two weeks ago, today, okay. we were at this church in Egypt oh. where it was just fantastic. The music, the engagement of everybody, I mean, the Holy Spirit was there in force. I mean, just really... It was very, very inspiring. A joyous celebration. Yes, it was. Well, one of the reasons that we joined this church is because my wife's a musician, and she really enjoyed the choir and that part of it, which I do too. Okay. And one of the most recent things that's been amazing as far as community here is to see the transition between David Kinzel leaving mm -hmm. and the Coopers coming in and the Petersons and... Uh, how that all is playing together with Pastor Dave and Pastor Mike and uh, how people are working together, Ben and Kate. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful thing to see and uh, very rewarding. Just yeah, not every transition is easy, and it's exactly. this one's gone, been it's, beautiful. It's pretty amazing what's happening here. I just hope everybody appreciates it because it doesn't happen in many churches, I don't think. That's true. That is true. Okay. Wonderful. So... Whether we shared or what we didn't share, we all have memories of the church that bring us back, that ground us to say, hey, this thing is worth it. This is why we come. 
This is why we invest time and money and energy. And so a good follow-up question is, as people of faith, how do we help create an environment that fosters these holy memories? Now, we probably could say some memories that were not so positive, and perhaps we'll get there later on. But really, we want to make this as wonderful and as beautiful and as uplifting as possible. But there are some challenges here. And some of the challenges we can address, but we can't really change the nature of them. And I'll just list a handful of them to you. In our congregations nowadays, we have four or five generations of people. That's a big challenge. You know, it's hard for people to span three generations. When you go to four or five generations, it makes it a little bit more difficult. Another example of a challenge that the church has is that within any congregation, you have very passionate political people on both sides of the aisle. And so, you know, how do you hold that together? We come from um, different experiences with money, family, marriage, sex. Often churches have people from a variety of education levels, different accesses um, to resources. We also come from different nationality or race backgrounds. And we can keep adding to this. When you gather a group of people in the world and they are that diverse, how do you make that work? To put that in another question, go back to the challenge the Corinthian church had. How do you bring those wealthy people in the ecclesia and the people who have very little into one community so that they're truly a community? You keep reminding them of the purpose. It was more of a rhetorical question, but hold on to that. That was good stuff. And the other side of that is when you gather a community, there's really two sides that we're going to see. The first is that you're going, in any situation, see beautiful actions. People who do good things and helpful things will also see an expression of our brokenness. Um, And this often is seen even at a national level when there's a horrible disaster. Sometimes it's out of those horrible disasters that we see some of the most beautiful gifts um, from people. Okay. What I would like to do is to help answer this question is to ground it in 1 Corinthians. And this is outside of the book. This is just something that I've been thinking about for a long time. Paul writes, and I'll remember you, remind you that here in 1 Corinthians, this is the same book that Paul was writing in chapter 11 about the discrepancy between the rich and the poor at the Lord's Supper. Paul at the beginning says, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there would be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Wow. Again, how do you take all of that humanity, all of those experience, unite them? Given the same mind, 
the same purpose. And just to show how complicated this would be, think of your closest loved ones, families, friends. <laughs> right? How hard is it to have the same mind with the people that you love the most? Now, throw in 250, 300 other people. See how complicated that gets? That's a pretty big task for the church. But Paul is going to argue that this is where we are to go. I think a more simplistic way to ask the same question, and this is where we can start getting into a fight, is why do we gather? Just shout out some reasons. When we gather on Sunday or throughout the week, why do people come here? Yes, sir. Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> my, my thought there was that um, we really don't have the same mind and the same desires or expectations. Okay. We really don't. But we still gather. We still gather. And it, it, it probably is for memory. Okay. Memories. But also support. That whatever we're wherever we are, that somewhere in here we're not too far apart. Okay, but yeah, that's enough, I think. So, the, so the, you you mentioned two things there. The first was the memory piece, right? So you, you might say that this is just this is part of our tradition. This is part of who we are. This helps ground us to where we were. And the second piece, what was I first? I'm sorry. We're really, we're really different. That we are really different. Yeah. But we still gather. Okay. Very good. Yes, ma'am. I come to learn to walk in the way. Okay. Some people come to learn. Oh, I remember, Greg, you were also talking about encouragement. Um, you come to be encouraged to support one another. We come to learn. Anybody else? Go ahead. Well, I would say I think it's important to hear people who do not think exactly as you do. Okay. And that challenges you, and you can discover that, wow, they seem like a decent person, and they don't agree with me. Sure. And, it's okay to challenge okay. yourself. So one of the reasons you come is to be challenged. Very good. Yes. Uh, to connect. Okay. Fellowship, we would say. Yeah. And, you know, tying into what I was uh, sharing about Linda Carnelli so many years ago, to know each other deeply and to be known. Okay. To know and to be known right out of Psalm 8. Anybody else? Why do we gather? Well... Okay, in the community that we're stronger together? Sure. Thank you, sir. And there's a joy and satisfaction in worshiping with other Christians. Okay. To worship, to be together, wonderful. Growing spiritually? Let me list off a couple that perhaps we didn't mention. Um, some people might say that we come for forgiveness. Some people might say that they come so that they can raise their kids and teach them morals. Some people might say they come to seek peace. Some people might come and say um, they'll give a real religious answer for the gospel. Now, I, I want to pause on this real fast because even when we talk about the gospel, I, I want to explain how perhaps when we use that language, we're not always saying the same thing. And this is where we can start having a good fight. Fights are good. In the Gospels, when Jesus goes out to proclaim the good news, what does he proclaim? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. 
according to the Gospels, out of Jesus' mouth, that is the good news. If you go to Hebrews, we start talking about blood atonement. That's a different view, right? Or if you look in our tradition, um, and if you were to ask Michael, I'm guessing if, I don't want to speak for you, what is part of the gospel? My guess is with his training, Michael would say, well, part of the gospel is incarnation. Part of the gospel is the life and the teaching of Jesus. Part of the gospel is the death of Jesus. Part of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. Part of the gospel is the ascension of Jesus, right? Why don't you put those kind of all? Yeah. So even if we use a word that is so central like gospel, I want to be very clear that we have all sorts of different images that pop out. And again, it brings us back to the question, how can we be of the same mind? How can we be united? What are we supposed to do here? So to add to this, we'll put in some some of the challenges. Some of these come from the book, but the first one comes from my head. I think one of the challenges that we have is Jesus actually never led a church. Think about that for a moment. And just put some more details onto that statement. It's uh, We are kind of winging it. <laughs> We are kind of winging it. And it just goes back to that basic understanding or that the phrase that we used earlier. It's faith sinking understanding, right? This is a process that we're trying to, to perfect as we go, to make it better as we go. Um, and again, to go back to some more details, words like pastor, bishop, elder, deacon were all words Jesus never used in the Gospels. Those are central to our understanding of the church. Okay. In the book also talks about that in our society, we have this anti-institutional trend and the church, if it is anything in the United States tends to be pretty institutional. I'll give you an example. In the Presbyterian church, we have different big agencies. One's the mission agency. One is, um, the board of pensions. One is the office of the general assembly. Do you want to take a guess which is the best funded? No, that's the worst funded. It's actually the Board of Pensions. The Board of Pensions, I mean, and that's an institutional matter, taking care of the people. Um, In the book, it also talks about, in our context, we live in a highly individualized society. And as Americans, we value independence. We value that we can do it by ourselves. The language that has been used in the church for a long time is not independence, but interdependence. That we are in this together. That we share this community together. Um, The book also makes an argument that some of our challenges deal with the fact that our words, that our ideals don't necessarily match up to how we act on a regular basis. So I'm just going to push a little hot button here, and then you'll throw a chair at me. It'll be great. (laughs) Michael's getting ready for it. Okay. He is ready and dangerous. So uh, just looking around this room, it appears to me that most of us come from an upper middle class background. If you were to go outside of the church's walls, our immediate neighbors here 
What is the average income, average education, average all health, health access, all sorts of stuff? Right? Appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving. And it's true. It's, I, I understand that. But the, it, it's not about what we've earned, what we've achieved. Sometimes it, it's a question of how do we actually incorporate, just like the challenge in the Corinthian church, people who come from different backgrounds. It's not an easy thing to do in any time or in any place. I mentioned a little bit about institutional priority. I guess I was putting that earlier. And then also this idea of an elite community. I used to serve a church, and the way that I described the church that I served is that it was a country club. Right? If, um, you know, good people, great hearts, generous people, a certain level to even make it in the door. And if you weren't at that certain level, if you walked in, you would feel extremely out of place. Extremely out of place. These are challenges. And our goal at the moment is not necessarily to answer those questions, but we can identify. Okay. As we move on, what biblical categories help us describe what this church is, what this ecclesia is? And my guess is you can come up with them pretty easy. There are actually three um, in our theology book. The first has to do with we are the people of God. And I can show you a couple passages here all the way from Leviticus. God makes this claim you will, be, or excuse me, I will be your God and you shall be my people. It's very relationship oriented. There's also a side of this that gives us a little bit of comfort that God owns us, that we belong to God. And if God is the one who owns us, we can take comfort in that. Another verse from the New Testament, Apostle Peter writes, you are God's own people. Now, again, highlighting that ownership, but look at the second side. The second thing here is that there is actually a purpose. What is this purpose? In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of the one who called you out of darkness into light. If you're following along in a textbook, you can see some notes on that from page 252. I'm going to skip ahead. To the second one. The second one is that the church is described, that this group of people who are called out are described as God's servant people. So from Exodus, we get phrases like, let my people go so that they may serve me. Often it's translated as worship me. Likewise, in the Gospels, this element of serving is pretty significant. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then finally from Matthew, whoever wants to be great among you should be your servant. So one major theme that describes who we are as a people is we're God's own people. The second major theme is that we are servants. And the third major theme we've already hit on a little bit has to do with the language around the body of Christ. And of course, the Apostle Paul hits this hard 
in 1 Corinthians, which we've already referred to. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Likewise in Romans, for if we have been united, there's that word united again, united with Christ in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his And if we talk about the body of Christ, of course, the scriptures also remind us that Jesus is the head of the body, that he is the one who is in charge. I just learned this recently um, as I'm picking up Arabic. The word for head, I'm going to miss it up. Rajanan is also the same word that is used for president. It's an interesting little tie. President and head are the same thing. One way to say that is Christ is our president. Christ is the head of the body. And finally, in Galatians, um, in this united nature, there's no distinction between Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. And again, this idea that though we come from different backgrounds, although we come from different perspectives in life, that we are brought together. Okay. I want to go back to the passage that we looked at earlier from 1 Corinthians 1. Look at some of those key words again. Paul says that I appeal to you that there would be no divisions, right? That we'd have the same mind and that we would have the same purpose. What I think is helpful here, and this is not in the book, is to look at the context of that passage. What is going on in this early part of 1 Corinthians that can help teach us what it means to be a Christian community. And there's some pretty simple, pretty basic points that are helpful. The first one is this. From 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, at first glance, there's nothing odd about that. But if we start thinking about it, it's a little bit odd. The word nothing is a pretty strong word. I decided to know nothing but the cross. Nothing but Christ crucified. Again, what does that leave out? Christmas, Easter, Ascension, Sermon on the Mount, all sorts of stuff, right? Why would Paul do that? Likewise, in that same chapter, it says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And later on, as we start focusing on Christ crucified, we already read it from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do proclaim what? You guys remember this liturgy in church? The Lord's death until he comes. Again, it's focused on the death. Hmm. That's pretty odd. And in fact, Paul will argue that focusing on the death of Christ is foolishness 
to the world. Because in the world, if you're trying to get ahead, if you're trying to build something, you don't typically do it by giving a self-offering. But this is the way of the church. The first component, I think, that Paul would teach the church is that as Christ gives his life, we are to give of ourselves. The second component that comes from 1 Corinthians 1, I alluded to it, is this foolishness nature. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And there's a couple things here that are really important. The first is about the tense of salvation. When do we typically think about salvation? In what tense? Or how do we typically think about it? The future, right? Look what Paul says. We are being saved. There is something about living this self-sacrificial life that offers something life-giving to others, just as Christ offered his life for us. He talked about the foolishness piece, but we also talked about, or we also want to focus in on that phrase, that's the power of God. For God's language, God's economy, is a lot different than ours. And so when we start to put this together, we can start saying, Christ crucified is this foolish power of God. Well, then we have at least one more, and this is where it starts to really fill out. 1 Corinthians chapter, or chapter 1, verse 7. Paul writes, You are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now, how many of you have done some study on the spiritual gifts? Probably a good portion. That also comes from, the main study comes from chapter 12 in this book. You're not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for, and this is the part that we lose in American Christianity. We don't talk about it much. What are we waiting for? The revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. God will also strengthen you until when? Until the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the titles that Christ is given in the Gospels is the Son of Man. And sometimes when we think about Son of Man, we think that actually emphasizes Jesus' humanness. But the title Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man comes in the clouds. The Son of Man is this great cosmic judge. And when the Son of Man comes in the clouds... It is the beginning of God's ultimate redemption. Hmm. Let's start putting this together. I'm going to skip that. Put some of these thoughts together. Paul says we are to focus on Christ crucified. This crucifixion is the foolish power of God. I'm going to argue that it creates the ecclesia, it creates the community whose actions point to God's ultimate redemption. And if we need help with what ultimate redemption is, we don't have to look any farther than the last book of the Bible. 
Just read a few verses here. From Revelation 21, these are verses that if you've been in the church, you know. John writes, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and be their God. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And these are perhaps the words you know the best. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. Hmm. So let's go back and think through this. We take Paul's argument, Christ crucified is the foolish power of God that creates the church whose actions point to God's ultimate redemption. And we talked a little bit about purpose. And earlier I said, one reason we gather is to build up the church, to encourage one another. But I'll push a little further there. As we gather perhaps it is helpful for us to ask ourselves the question every time we come, are we pointing to God's ultimate redemption? Are our actions, our thoughts, our ways of functioning, encouraging not just us, but others who watch us to see something that is much greater, bigger, more beautiful than we actually live into. And I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we can go back to some language that Paul used as he was correcting the church in Corinth. He says, when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. One goes hungry, another goes drunk. Do you not have enough to eat and drink in your homes? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Now, we might say, "Mm, that's not us. But I do think that if we're honest, we would be able to say, there are ways in which we act that do point to God's ultimate redemption. And perhaps there are ways that don't quite fully get it. And it's the challenge of the Christian, and it's the challenge of the church, to think through those on a regular basis. And I would argue that a a church that is healthy is a church that asks one another, how can we do this better? It's not a matter of making ourselves feel bad, or saying, hey, you're horrible, or you're not good enough. But we do want to grow as we continue. Okay. I know we're coming to the end of our time and people had to go. So I'm going to wrap up, but I was curious if anybody had any thoughts, questions, concerns, or maybe is there any way that we can pray for one another today? Okay.
relationship believe a certain way. Okay. And the pastor says, if I go against what that person believes, I won't get his money or her money or whatever. Okay. Therefore, I don't say anything about what's wrong about that. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard for people to, to make decisions between the ideal and um, what they think is best in the moment. There's no doubt about that. That's true. Anybody else? Okay. What do you mean is everything voluntary? Well, like um, you said, what was it? Christ crucified, meaning sacrifice to serve others. What if you don't voluntarily do it, but it happens? You know, like when they okay. taxes, for example. <laughs> okay. You know, up to a point. Sure, 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 sure. But there's a lot of stuff like... Well, I mean, you know, this is probably off the subject, but like suffering. Okay. That's not voluntary. Suffering is not but voluntary. I don't know what that serves, but I well, mean, I do know, I, do, I have my own ideas of what it serves, but okay. I don't think it falls into this. Well, it? you know, yeah, suffering is a big issue, and per- perhaps it does connect in some way. Perhaps the connection is that when we see someone suffer, that's our chance to suffer for them, right, to to sacrifice ourselves for them so that they can be relieved a little bit, right? Um, yes, sometimes things just happen to us. Yes, it's an opportunity for somebody else. Actually, I ran it. I'm trying to remember who it was. I can't remember. But in the past month, someone was telling me um, that they, they needed to ask for money for a particular ministry. And the way that they phrased it was they were giving the other person an opportunity to do something good. <laughs> that was an interesting twist on it. Interesting twist. Okay. Why don't we close in prayer? Oh, merciful and gracious God, we thank you for one another. We thank you that we can gather. We thank you for those who have gone before us, for those who have helped guide our thoughts in the past. And Lord, we ask that as we continue to serve, as we continue to try to figure out what it means to be a healthy Christian community, that you would not only lead us in the coming days, but that you would help us provide a platform for those who come after us to be more faithful, to be more filled with joy in your salvation. In the name of Christ Jesus, we give thanks. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for coming.